0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest agricultural innovation network. It is part of a series of episodes examining the links between climate variability and security. I moderate a discussion among a panel of experts who explore the relationship between security and land use, including forestry. The episode kicks off with some introductory remarks by Linny Wallenberg, flagship leader, low emissions development at CGIAR, before I pose questions to our panelists. Enjoy and be sure to visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org to register for the next live event in this series. And here is Linny Wallenberg.
1: Hello. My name is Lini Wallenberg, and I'm with the CGIR's climate change program known as CCAFs, where I lead the work on low emission development. Our topic for today is climate change mitigation and security, two themes that are rarely discussed at the same table, let alone jointly pursued. Our purpose in today's webinar is to understand how in practice to achieve both of these goals for the case of natural resources and energy. I'll turn to the case of forests. Forests are the single largest terrestrial stock of carbon and store about 2 billion tons of carbon annually. There are also sites of massive insecurity, whether due to illicit activities, such as illegal logging, mining, trafficking, production of drugs, which attract corruption and organized crime, or disputes about claims to resources and land in forests, which often lead to destruction of property or violence, or finally, sites of armed conflict. We know that about 80% Of the armed conflict globally has occurred in biodiversity hotspots in the last several decades, and many of these are forest areas. So the first point I'd like to make is that forests are hotspots for climate change mitigation and insecurity. How do climate change mitigation and security influence each other? We can see at least three patterns. First is a vicious cycle, a cycle of conflict leading to environmental degradation, and scarcity, which then feeds back into more conflict. We can see this in the case of rural Afghanistan. The second dynamic is that after conflict, post-conflict periods, during peace building, forests are often opened up for settlement or for economic development. We've seen this in the case with Colombia, with road building leading to increased deforestation. And then we have transitional periods of uncertainty, of of policy change, where we can see people taking advantage of, of the of a gap in control, as we've seen in Myanmar after the coup, where illegal logging increased, and as I experienced in Indonesia when decentralization occurred. So the second point, major point I'd like to make, is that forests are also vulnerable. These hotspots are, are vulnerable because they're fundamentally far from central power and legal enforcement. They are they're places of weak state control, but often very strong local institutions, and these often clash. In China, there's an expression that the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. So you add to this valuable resources and marginalized communities, and you have a potent recipe for corruption, conflict, and income disparity. What does this mean then for climate change mitigation that needs to sustain forests over decades and where we need strong institutions to distribute finance or to monitor the condition of the forests? So turning now to these climate change mitigation institutions, the predominant intervention has been REDD+, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, which has attracted 5 billion US dollars in public finance, 400 million in, in corporate finance. And as of January 2020, we had 50 low and middle income countries who had reported to the UNFCCC baselines that would enable them to apply for REDD. And this applied to about 70% of their forests. Constituting about 63 billion tons. We also have seen company commitments to net zero deforestation with 500 companies in 2017. However, these have been pretty small scale and we're not quite sure of the, the level of impact. What is the impact of these climate change mitigation I- interventions on security? First, we're seeing initial evidence that finance is leading to speculation and green grabbing, that new actors are making claims on forests. that that all of this is encouraging more corruption and inequity. Second, we're seeing economic winners and losers. Some people are losing access to the forest. We're seeing countries that do have high levels of insecurity, not even having access to these increased funds. And finally, we see processes that are very top-down, driven by international logics and by centrally-driven institutions that are exacerbating conflict with local communities and simply often don't work. At the same time, these interventions also potentially are increasing accountability and transparency and enforcement of forest conservation. And so we're still reviewing the evidence and we have a paper that we'll be sharing um, that we're partnering with the Dalla Institute and should be done in October. So by way of conclusion, I've noted that forests are hotspots for both climate change mitigation and security, that they're vulnerable due to these weak institutions. So my third point is, what are the institutions that could make a difference? First is continue supporting improved rule of law, considering both climate change mitigation and security concerns, taking advantage of new tools, new digital tools that will make much of that much less expensive, whether that's real-time monitoring, use of big data, drones, cameras, etc. Second is to manage tenure and access, especially where carbon is being traded to prevent that green grabbing and to recognize prior and overlapping land claims and to ensure socially just outcomes. Third is to better integrate forest conservation and climate goals into the peace processes and monitor performance, ensure that there are institutions for enforcement and finance. And fourth is to enable localizing these programs to have better stakeholder processes locally and to ensure that there are conflict management institutions. So thank you very much. I'll now turn to a short video and over to Mark Goldberg and our excellent panelists.
0: Welcome everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm the host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's episode is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. In today's conversation, we are going to examine how climate change mitigation efforts in land use and forestry can be both drivers of security and insecurity. Uh, Now, Linny Wallenberg just offered a very comprehensive background and overview of the issues and topics under discussion today, so I would like to dive right in and introduce our excellent panelists that we have assembled for you today. Sharon Burke is the president of Echospherics. Welcome. Thank you. Davith, thank you. David Stewart is an environmental crime and law enforcement expert. Welcome. Thank you, Max. Jan-Peter Schilling is scientific director of Peace Academy Rhineland-Palatinate, University of Koblenz-Landau. Welcome. Hi, everyone. And Augusto Castro Nunez is the theme leader for low-emission food systems and peace building, the Alliance of Bioversity International, and CIAT. Welcome, all. So I am going to kick off with some questions, but leave plenty of time for audience participation. To ask a question of the panelists, please simply leave your question in the comment field wherever you are watching it. We'll see those comments as they come in. Uh, So to kick off to our panelists, I am going to ask you all to briefly respond to Lenny Wallenberg's opening remarks. Listening to her introduction and framing, what are examples you have seen in your work about how we can achieve climate change mitigation and improve security in the land sector? And Sharon, I will start with you.
2: Great. Thanks so much, Mark. So I'm going to zoom up to the 30,000-foot level and start there. I think, you know, first we have to consider that the modern global economy has brought us to this point of environmental crisis. And that's a conundrum, because everyone deserves to live with the benefits of the industrial age, whether that's COVID vaccines or access to electricity. But that industrial past is killing the future. It's destroying resources, as Lini laid out so well, such as forests. So we have to harness the innovation of the digital era to this challenge of changing the way we all live and the way we want to live, more to the point. That's going to require a huge amount of science and technology innovation, but also institutional and societal innovation. And it's not just about making better things or even better energy. You know, I think Lini talked about information technology, for example. So big data, remote sensing, machine learning, these things can also be a big help. Because that technology can not just help with monitoring, but also with early warning for conflict and early action. And it can enable early action. Um, So, for example, by better forecasting for conditions such as drought that can lead to instability and unrest. And those are the kinds of innovations that can help us shift the way we govern around environmental conflict from largely reactive and waiting for problems to emerge to become crises to preventive and anticipatory allowing us to do a better job of building resilience to the changes that we're going to see and towards prioritizing our actions and our investments in mitigation in, in a way that will prevent crises. To me, that's that's inherently about conflict prevention and about building peace rather than fighting wars, which I think in my country is where a lot of the investment has been focused on. It's on being ready to fight wars rather than building peace. And this is also a virtual cycle because you can only get to change on the scale um, it through collective means. It's the only way, and that certainly includes the United States and China. So this kind of uh, investment in mitigation can be a confidence-building measure more broadly for peace and security. And I think, you know, if I were going to sum that all up, I'd say we can either suffer alone or adapt and mitigate together.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Davith, same question to you. What are examples you have seen in your work about how we can achieve climate change mitigation and improve security in the land sector?
3: Thank uh, thank you, Mark. And um, I I particularly liked the introduction from Linny, and I I endorse a lot of her, her feedback and her comments. I'm going to come at it particularly from the perspective of my work experience, which has largely been Focused on supporting law enforcement agencies that are looking at illegal logging and criminality within the timber industry. Uh, so, I'd start just by bringing up the fact that illegal logging and forestry crime is estimated to be worth as much as 150 billion US dollars per year, according to estimates by the United Nations and Interpol. Uh, so, with that sort of money at stake, the illegal uh, timber industry is attracting many of the world's largest organized crime groups. And and apart from the serious uh, environmental damage that illegal logging and agricultural expansion is causing, it also has particularly deadly, unfortunately that's the right word, deadly consequences for lots of local communities and Indigenous people that live in and around forests. Um, A recent report that was released by the environmental non-governmental organisation Global Witness uh, found that there's over 200 environmental activists who are killed every year. That's an average of more than four uh, a week. Uh, I think the, the primary issue here is unclear land ownership, which often causes conflict over who should have access to forest areas. And this is a particular problem in many developing countries that, don't have, a, uh, that have poorly maintained land title registries and uh, the registers are often not kept uh, correctly. Uh, which, of course, creates opportunities for, for for fraudulent documents and for bribery of, of government officials. Uh, the, the activists that are most at risk uh, from being killed for their, their activism are those who are working against uh, the mining sector, agribusiness or the logging industry. Uh, and Latin America, unfortunately, has consistently been the most dangerous continent uh, for environmental activists. So... Um, these disputes are usually stemming over conflict over the forest land uh, as mining uh, agriculture and, and logging operations move in and encroach on forest areas that are that are relied upon by many local communities and indigenous people who are using the resources of the forest for their own survival uh, in fact 40 percent of those who are killed for environmental activism are indigenous peoples uh, and on top of that uh, approximately 150 rangers and law enforcement officers are killed every year in the line of duty uh, for protecting parks and wildlife. So while it's absolutely correct uh, that climate mitigation efforts should be including strategies to protect forest areas, the forest areas are not without risk uh, for conflict and security. And I'd like to see more efforts in strengthening law enforcement and particularly securing the rights and the protections of the people that live in and near forests.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you, David, Jan, Petter, over to you to, for your reactions, response to Linny Wallenberg's opening remarks.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Mark, for that question. Um, I mean, I can tell you what doesn't work. Um, if we stretch out, uh, implement RED+, Plus and local communities lose access to forests, and that was mentioned in Linney's and also in Darwin's uh, yeah, contribution, then something goes wrong. Because uh, if we try to mitigate climate change, what we need to do, we all agree on that, but the local effects are negative, then something goes wrong. The same with wind power. If we install renewable energy and that's so green and that's great, but if that means that the communities right next to the wind park, once it's done, are still sitting in the dark, then we know something went wrong. And the question is, and that's a tricky one, how do we uh, avoid that? How can we make climate mitigation efforts peace positive or at least have more than local benefits for the communities. And what we need to do and we need to be quick with that is to get away from the center of uh, putting the project at the center but putting the local communities at the center. What does that mean? That means We're not trying to only build the wind park, but we are first looking at the local communities where we want to build uh, the wind park and see what needs do they have, what values do they have, what potential conflicts uh, they have. And we first need to understand that before we can even erect the first uh, wind uh, turbine or uh, think about any uh, carbon project in terms of red plus or any forest conservation. So we need to move away from the project orientation to the local communities. They need to be the ones strongly benefiting in terms of resources, um, infrastructure, um, money, uh, before we can think of uh, climate mitigation. Uh,
0: Thank you. And uh, Augusto, over to you. Uh, Augusto, you are going to need to unmute your microphone.
5: Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, As the previous panelists have mentioned, conflict in the, and, and, and climate change mitigation in the land sector are connected. Not only in their drivers, but they are also connected in their solutions. So I will cite, and I want to cite two examples: examples of current efforts towards climate security and peace building in the agricultural, forestry, and land sector. The first example is the BioCarbon Fund initiative for sustainable forest landscapes. This is a multilateral facility that the World Bank manages. The BioCarbon Fund integrates the issue of climate change mitigation and peace building by, for instance promoting a rewarding reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in regions affected by conflict in the Orinoquilla region in Colombia. The second example is the COCOA and Forest Initiative. The goal of this multi-stakeholder dialogue platform, which the World COCOA Foundation promotes, is that the global COCOA value chain achieves zero deforestation production. In Colombia, this initiative is called COCOA Forest and Peace Initiative and targets areas affected by conflict. And the third example is the sustainable land use system project. The International Climate Initiative of Germany funds this project. And we at the Alliance of Biodiversity and CIAT are the lead implementers. One of our main goals is to integrate into policies and programs in Colombia the issues of climate change mitigation, land restoration, and long with peace use. This supports the effort of Colombia to meet its commitments to the Paris Agreement, to the peace agreement that it signed with the FARC in 2016, but also to the Paris Agreement. Those three examples illustrate the efforts that integrate climate change mitigation and peace building, but much more needs to happen to achieve both objectives. This includes scaling up and out sustainable land uses, but also developing frameworks on how to integrate and measure contributions to our climate change security and peace building. Thank you. Thank you all for
0: your opening remarks. We're going to now dive a little deeper into your own individual areas of expertise. And uh, Sharon Burke, I will start with you. Uh, You have held several positions at the intersection of natural resources and security and now have your own consultancy, which works in this area. What are some of the big ideas that you're seeing to leverage mitigation for peace building, to both work towards the Paris uh, Agreement targets and also increase security.
2: Well, I think specifically, I want to address energy and, and just to say that you know, I think that energy poverty is still a major global problem. You know, about a billion about a billion people lack access to electricity, and uh, far more than that lack reliable access. You know, even in my own country, um, where we've had nearly universal electricity access for decades we've had a wake-up call with with storms this winter and wildfires this summer that are still going on in my native California um, about the way that climate change is impacting the reliability of our energy access. So I think in the bigger picture, corruption and instability uh, historically come with fossil fuel production. It's just part and parcel of the ownership of land and mineral rights and, and how profits are distributed or not distributed, as the case may be. So um, I think, uh, you know, we... I, I think we'll probably return to this later uh, as, uh, and talk more about about energy and how um, energy is a concern, unless you want me to keep talking about energy right now.
0: Uh, we, we, we can uh, get back to that. We'll We'll keep this conversation going and flowing. Thank you. Uh, and uh, David, I'm going to turn to you now. you worked for several years at Interpol. Uh, can you briefly draw on your previous experience at Interpol? How does Interpol, through its environmental program and partnerships with intergovernmental organizations, contribute to mitigating climate change in forested areas?
3: Um, thank, thank you, Mark. It's probably good that I give a little overview of Interpol because I'm not sure a lot of people are aware that it, that it even has an environmental crime program. But that's okay because our, our target audience is mostly the world's law enforcement community. Uh, But when Interpol first established its environmental crime units, uh, the first step it took really was to raise awareness um, and provide training about what is forest crime uh, and what is the scale of the problem. Uh, So, you know, to start with the scale, globally illegal logging makes up 15 uh, to 30 percent of the timber supply. uh, And in some key tropical uh, rainforest countries, illegal logging is actually 50 to 90 percent of all forest activities. So it's and it's a multi-billion-dollar criminal enterprise uh, that's clearing uh, a football field of forest every two seconds. Uh, the issue with forestry crime is that it's a truly international crime. So a company from one country uh, cuts timber in another. The logs are shipped to a, to the sawmills in a third country, where the timber is often then mixed with other logs, and false paperwork is prepared to hide the original source of the timber. And meanwhile, of course, the profits are siphoned off uh, to bank accounts in tax havens. Uh, So the illegal activity in the industry is a a combination of fraud, bribery, false documents, and, of course, there are lawyers and accountants who are helping hide the illicit uh, profits. So organisations, international organisations like Interpol and also uh, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, work together to bring uh, law enforcement agencies together from different countries uh, to target the forest crime across multiple jurisdictions. Uh, so the work is is uh, largely focused on providing support through capacity building and training, uh, efforts to help the world's police community uh, recognise how forest crime works and give the officers the skills and the knowledge they lead. Uh, and I just, to conclude, say that, I, you know, one of the successes we've seen is that a lot of police forces now are establishing dedicated forestry crime units uh, in their countries and, and conducting cross-border operations and investigations. Uh, Thank you. Uh,
0: And now, Augusto, uh, to you. Your work in Colombia aims to align climate change mitigation, adaptation, and peace-building efforts. Can you explain how this is done on the ground in Colombia and what signs of improved security and climate change mitigation impacts that that you're seeing?
5: Well, thanks. Good question, Mark. We're working First, we work in mainstream CER research on climate change and peace building into the work of various projects, programs as well, uh, including the Orinokia Biocarbon Fund Initiative and the Cacao Forest and Peace Initiative that I mentioned before. Through the SLUS project, the Sustainable Land Use System project, we work with the Cacao and Livestock Value Chains to develop practices and business models that contribute to both climate change mitigation and peace building. We are not interested only in climate change needed in only peace building, we're integrated in those outcomes together. As to the impacts, we, we see improved, livelihood among, improved livelihoods among livestock producers. We also see cacao farmers having better access to markets. In farms, we see improved water and land management and richer biodiversity, also low emissions. Those impacts, however, are only at farm level. That is because most of the initiatives are at that level. And that's an issue. The massive adoption of practices that integrate climate mitigation and peace building is not yet happening. We expect, however, good results when it happens. We are aware also that the massive adoption of such practices may have unintended consequences. I think that David has already mentioned some of them. Uh, However, we are aware that the massive adoption of such practices may have unintended consequences. For instance, in the form of deforestation leakage. Uh, that is why it is important to develop not only fr- safeguards, but also frameworks for integrating and measuring the contributions of all these initiatives to climate security and peace movement. and the, And that is where research for development comes. Uh, thanks.
0: Uh, Thank you. Uh, So Jan, Petter, one of the things I love about moderating this climate security series is that we always make room and are sure to include perspectives from academia, researchers and scientists. So uh, from the academic world, what research is needed to make sure mitigation projects don't harm climate security and instead contribute towards peace and security? And how do we make sure peace and security initiatives are climate sensitive?
4: Yeah, again, excellent question. Uh, Thanks, Mark. So uh, what we need is uh, an understanding of the local dynamics, as I tried to mention in uh, my previous statement. And what that implies is that we need to dedicate uh, money and time to field research, geographic, ethnographic um, research that is really understanding the local context before we can come in and mingle and change anything. Uh, so really, the focus should be on understanding the local uh, governance of resources, the local power dynamics, the local uh, conflict potential, and also how uh, uh, any project might uh, impact these. That's what you usually summarize under conflict sensitivity. And what we also need, and that's I'm looking at myself there, is not only on how these lead to conflict, but also positive examples. And here we are in the region of environmental Peace building, where we actually um, try to identify environmental challenges and risks as common obstacles, common problems that we can come overcome together. So in a nutshell, uh, what we need to, un- we need to understand the local context, but the academia or academic world needs to focus also more on what works and not only on what doesn't work and what leads to conflicts, uh, because we know what leads to conflicts. These are two, basically two headlines. One, either we introduce resources that are scarce on the ground and that can cause competition. And uh, my fellow speakers have mentioned some of the dynamics or you take away resources from the people. Um, For instance, if you lock them out of forests, that is also likely to contribute to conflicts. And in terms of research is we need to understand both. uh, If you have abundance resources, if you introduce resources, if you have scarcity of resources, but also how a project as a wind farm can contribute Ah, uh, to peace um, and to positive example, and there the literature is is much less developed.
0: Uh, thank you. Now, Sharon, let us have that conversation about energy now. Uh, what positive impacts could the energy transition that is away from centralized fossil fuel production bring for peace and achieving emissions targets?
2: Thanks, Mark. you know I was in a hurry to get to this point, so I'm glad to get here. Um, and I already, you know, said a few things about energy poverty. I just, before I talk about energy, I just wanted to comment on something Jan Petter said about needing to shift the focus to what works and not just what doesn't work. I think that's brilliant. I uh, completely agree with that. And also would say part of that focus needs to be on sort of what, what in my community we would call actionable research in that, you know, there I think there's a, remains a big gap between what we know in the research field and what we need to know in order to implement. So um, just wanted to add that in, you know, as for energy, I think it's inherent in your question, Mark, that, that democratizing, the democratizing effect of decentralized renewable energy has a potential to change the way that, that energy politics have functioned. But one of the things that concerns me about that is that we do have to be careful. We're not trading one resource trap for a different one because renewable energy depends on natural resources too, and, and specifically critical minerals, such as you know, the lithium and the cobalt in the batteries of electric vehicles or the tellurium and indium and cadmium in solar cells. The, the production of those minerals refracts through national governments and land rights and uh, mineral ownership too, and it's a dirty business. And I don't just mean that in terms of the corruption of human systems, but the land use implications in mining and the pollution of processing. So there are many things we can do right now to help make sure that this transition to renewables is positive. First, we need to invest in radical energy efficiency, especially in countries such as mine, where the per capita energy consumption is very high. Uh, We just have to make this problem smaller if we're going to be able to solve it. And that's a win-win when it comes to the mitigation uh, challenge and the Paris goals. We need to find better ways to recycle and recover minerals and materials, lower impact ways of mining and processing, minimizing how much you need for any given technology. And we have to do a better job of strengthening the rule of law around resources. And that, that just benefits peace and security more generally. Um, we need to plan in a bigger sense about how to help the losing parties in this transition. Lini talked about this too with forests. You cannot let success in mitigation become itself a threat to peace and stability. And I think John Petter talked to this a peace positive mitigation. We need to make sure these things are moving in the same direction and are not pitted against each other.
0: And for those listening, not watching, Jan Petter just gave you a a big thumbs up for that last remark. Uh, and And Sharon, I'm glad that you referenced uh, corruption because it's not, you know th- that's often not part of of our conversations on climate change, frankly. Uh, But, Davith, over to you. We might expect, you know, during the UN UN Food Systems Summit, which is going to happen during uh, the UN General Assembly and then COP26 in November, increased commitments in climate finance. And with this in mind, it obviously raises questions about the impact of corruption, fraud, and other kinds of criminal activities, what impact that has on climate finance, and how does this impact impact how we, uh, approach climate change mitigation efforts.
3: Uh, well, thank you. Unfortunately, uh, foreign investment and corruption seem to go pretty much hand in hand. And unfortunately the forest sector itself is particularly vulnerable, uh, to corruption, uh, largely because many of the forests, particularly the tropical forests are located in countries that, that have weak governance, uh, have poor regulatory regimes and, and low law enforcement capacity. Uh, and there's been repeated studies um, that have confirmed there's a direct relationship between uh, the rate of illegal logging and the level of corruption uh, in a country. So if you plot on a graph uh, the level of corruption in a country, and you use Transparency International's uh, consumer corruption perception index, and you map that against the percentage of the illegal timber that is produced in that country, you see a direct uh, relationship. They're directly proportional to one another, which means, in other words, that countries with higher levels of corruption tend to have high rates of illegal logging and deforestation. Uh, Interpol in fact has estimated that the global cost of corruption in the forestry sector is worth almost 30 billion US dollars a year uh, but even more important than the economic cost uh, is that corruption and bribery of the public officials seriously undermines governance in the world's forests and uh, seriously questions the effectiveness of any international strategy that might be implemented to protect forests. Uh, particularly the corruption at at high level um, amongst government influences government policy, it pushes forest crime to a low priority on the legislative agenda, it reduces the resources that are available to law enforcement Uh, and it also undermines the the attitudes of the timber industry itself. Uh, They're affected by their perception of um, corruption amongst regulators and government officials and that lack of trust itself um, uh, of the government agencies reduces their level of compliance uh, with regulation. So I would just say that, that clearly corruption itself um, must be addressed in any um, climate finance uh, program uh, before we're going to have any really effective efforts at reducing um, deforestation. Uh, thank you. And
0: to you, Augusto, from your experience, what are the key lessons you've learned to help manage long-term conflict in ways that support both peace and efforts to mitigate climate change?
5: We are talking uh, about to- Fry island States. I am not, uh, we are talking about Fry Isle States, uh, and we want to reduce emissions in Fry Isle States. So that's something complicated. So, there are three lessons that I could draw from my
0: experience we it appears we are having some challenge with your line Augusto we will come back to you though uh, please uh, we'll, we'll see if we can improve your line let me just briefly turn to Jan Petter and then we'll come back to you to see if your your connection has improved Augusto uh, Jan Petter uh, can you just Briefly and draw on your experiences in Africa. How can climate change mitigation help strengthen peace and security in Africa?
4: Yeah, thanks, Mark. I mean, any mitigation project, then they're usually large scale, otherwise they are harder to finance. So if we're talking about large wind farms or if we're talking about a larger Red Plus project, means resources. That means uh, access roads to the, to the resource. If you want to build uh, a wind park, you need roads for that. If you need to access uh, a forest, also roads are usually helpful. Um, so it does mean some sort of infrastructure. And it does mean attention to that region where the project um, is supposed to be implemented. And of course, that's a chance. Uh, that's a chance to, um, for the local communities uh, to get access to resources that otherwise they might not have uh, access to. Um, so, in theory, uh, that can be a good thing, and there can be a win-win situation. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that usually uh, those local actors benefit who are already uh, in a better off position, and those who have less power um, significantly uh, benefit less from the project or are even more marginalized. And here we're coming back to the issue of land tenure, for instance, in, in forest projects, so for those who are like illegally um, using the forests, for instance, for charcoal production or to, to get firewood or uh, other activities, and then a project comes in, formalizes these uh, land uh, tenure issues and the land rights. And then even forcefully, um, then the local communities are excluded from the resources. And that is something that cannot happen uh, because otherwise we might be uh, winning on the climate mitigation side, but really detrimentally losing on the local end.
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, and let's see if we can get Augusto back. Augusto.
5: Uh, Hi, can you hear me? Perfectly. Great, fantastic. Okay, there are three lessons that I, can, that I can draw from my experience. The first lesson is that climate action and peace building can create virtual cycles that generate co-benefits. For instance, the success of climate action hinges on instability. In places where armed conflict is present, peacemaking and humanitarian efforts can help create the environment that will pave the way for those places to be ready for climate action. In the long term, climate action can bring long lasting peace. Understanding the connection between the drivers of land based emissions and the drivers of conflict will facilitate this process and will maximize the co benefits and prevent undesired consequences. My second lesson is that efforts to achieve peace can deliver undesired outcomes. These outcomes include deforestation and carbon emissions. The same same thing can be said about efforts for forest conservation. They can exacerbate the drivers of conflict, as has been mentioned before. Why this has happened lies in the lack of a unified framework for designing climate security and peace building interventions. Take the case of the cocoa production in African countries that emerged from conflict. What was meant to promote peace building turned into a major driver of deforestation and carbon emissions, likewise in Colombia. There is a risk of unified deforestation from efforts to escape sustainable livestock systems. The third lesson is that efforts to conserve forests and reduce land based emissions can unintentionally exacerbate land related conflicts, particularly those that restrict land, land access. We have some, this is well documented, uh, as has been pre- pre- previously mentioned by, by David. In Colombia, for instance, efforts to escape sustainable livestock can fuel conflict particularly if the connection between livestock, land grabbing, deforestation, and conflict is not well understood. But this can be the opposite, and we need to work on that. Thank you all. And I
0: have one more question for each of you before I ask that question. I do want to remind viewers that you can ask a question of the panelists simply by leaving a comment field wherever a comment in the stream, wherever you're watching this. Uh, so final question to the panelists, if you you have one minute each to answer, uh, Recently, the IPCC once again released a report stressing the urgency of the climate crisis. So I wanted to ask each of you what you or your organization will do in the next 10 years uh, to, uh, in the field of mitigation and security to help you know, promote mitigation and increase security at the same time. Uh, Sharon, I will turn to you.
2: Thanks, Mark. Uh, well, my, my organization is brand new. Uh, and what... What we plan to do, what I hope we do over the next 10 years, is help my country shift its definition of security. You know, for most of our history, the United States has defined security as being all about war fighting, and we have disproportionately focused on that. In the current circumstances with global environmental change and all the things we've been talking about today, we really need to shift our definition to be about security building and peace building. And I hope that I can help my country achieve that over the next 10 years. Well, much sooner than the next 10 years, within the next year.
0: Well, well thank you. And as a, a fellow countryman, it's, it's heartening to hear a former senior official at the Department of Defence say such a thing. Uh, Davith, to you.
3: Um, thank you. Yes. I mean, in principle, I would hope to see organisations like Interpol and the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime continue to do more of what they have been doing in terms of providing training and, and expert advice to law enforcement agencies and and helping coordinate cross-border operations and investigations. But I have to also say the blunt answer to your question is that unfortunately none of that work will happen in the decade ahead unless there is sufficient financial support. So Interpol's environmental crime program, for example, is not a core function of Interpol. It relies 100% on external funding sources, and it's the same for other international organisations within the UN, the World Customs Organisation, Europol, et cetera, that all rely on additional funding to support their environmental crime programmes. So really we need to see in these international negotiations more emphasis and more investment in law enforcement to ensure that any policy strategies you have for forest protection are going to include proper funding for law enforcement. As I said earlier, um, forestry crime may be worth up to $150 billion a year, but World Bank estimates of how much money is available for law enforcement is less than 0.1% of that. Uh, law enforcement are dealing with just the pittance to tackle uh, the amount of money that the, the criminals hold, and international organisations like Interpol get only 1% of that, again, uh, in terms of their efforts to deal with the international aspects
5: of forestry crime. Uh, thank you. And uh, Augusto, to you. Yeah, at Alliance Biodiversity and SEAD, we have a community of researchers working to address climate crisis by developing and testing three things. Uh, that is being done as part of our work, work on climate security and peace building. First, we are developing and testing frameworks that integrate and improve the coordination of activities on climate action and peace building. That's key. Second, we are generating indicators that can measure, monitor, and report contributions to that two objectives climate action and peace building. And the third, we are developing and testing sustainable land use systems, value chain strategies, and business models that contribute to our climate action and peace building. We have been doing all this in Colombia, and our hope is to scale our efforts to other countries where these issues also intersect. Thanks. Okay, and Jan Petter, to you.
4: Well, what we can do is to write uh, research on exactly the question that we've been discussing now for the past 45 minutes or so is how can climate mitigation and adaptation uh, as well? We haven't talked so much about that, but uh, climate mitigation, strengthen local resilience, be conflict sensitive and ideally be uh, peace positive. Uh, That is certainly not an easy question, but we are at the Peace Academy at the University of Koblenz-Landau on it. All right. Thank you all. We
0: are now going to turn to the audience and I'm going to bring in Reese Bucknall williams to facilitate this part of the conversation. Welcome, Reese. And I take it we've had a number of questions come in from the audience. So over to you. Uh, you might need to unmute.
6: Apologies. Apologies there. Uh, okay. Uh, hi, everybody. It's nice to be here. Um, yes, yeah, so we've had a lot of questions coming in uh, on LinkedIn and YouTube, so it's great to see that this uh, really great discussion is driving those questions. Um, and my first question maybe, is to David, and this is uh, this is one that's been uh, – the question has been asked a few times, actually, in, in the chat. Um, and it's more about – I mean, you've kind of talked about the kind of crime elements and, and, and the financial institutions or the kind of financial system that perhaps supports these crimes. Um, perhaps what, what changes would you – perhaps uh, like to see in maybe consumer behaviour or uh, financial institutions or financial protocols that could perhaps help mitigate against, you know, forestry crime or crimes in other natural resource uh, sectors?
3: Uh, Thank you. Yes, I think, I mean, uh, I think focusing on financial institutions, as you mentioned there, I think is an important point. Uh, There is a lot of investment made in the timber industry. uh, And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the whether it's banks or, or financial investors or, or simply other companies that are doing business uh, with members of the timber industry. I don't think they fully appreciate the risks that they themselves are at if they are investing in and, and supporting a company that is uh, breaching forestry laws, committing illegal logging, perhaps involved in, in some conflicts at the local level. Uh, so I think, um, you know, there, there really needs to be a, a little bit more understanding that there is a compliance risk Uh, to to those uh, to financial institutions and those that are working with and and propping up a lot of these uh, logging companies, uh, sawmills, uh, companies involved in in transport, and and all of those companies along the timber supply chain. Behind all of them are are financial backers, uh, lawyers, uh, other companies doing business. There is a a significant need to understand that they play a role and perhaps in the future, particularly as we're seeing uh, legal liability laws changing and, and the courts starting to be a little bit more willing to recognize that perhaps there, there is liability on behalf of these companies and, and these financial institutions for their role in propping up and supporting these these um, legal activities.
6: Okay great thank you. Um, so my next question perhaps is for Augusto. Um, uh, so we've seen in the media recently lots of Stories about your know, countries like uh, Brazil or Myanmar or D N C of the D R C or Colombia, um, you know, with well sort of publicized issues around you know the management of uh, of maybe some natural resources. Of course, um, in countries like Afghanistan, for example, the situation missing there. Um, actually, it's a country very rich in minerals. So there's some questions about you know the kind of systems and management that going going forward for the extraction of those and the management of those and and the sale of those. So through your analysis, I, I was wondering if you have sort of examples of maybe countries that have Maybe a positive story to, set, to say about this, and, and maybe who've been able to build up systems. Um, and perhaps what innovations or knowledge, kind of tools or ecosystems have helped them do that?
5: Wow, well, positive example. There for sure exists, not necessarily at the country level, but probably at a subnational scale. They, we, we've seen many, many local contexts where, for instance, promoting sustainable land use systems well connected to markets have reduced. Immense, huge amounts of, of illegal cross production that can, that can be seen in, in Peru, for instance, in, in Colombia as well. Uh, however, these are context-specific cases that we need to understand better in order to scale up, up them to other places and scale out them to other places. And, and unfortunately, most of these of these issues and, and these interconnected problems between land-based emissions and conflict are context-specific, so we cannot generalize. And, and what is happening is that we tend to generalize based on two, three examples, mostly Brazil, Indonesia, DRC, are cases that we've seen and we, we study a lot, and then we try to move those examples to other countries. And that's something that we can improve, for sure.
0: We certainly have time for more questions. So Reese, uh, over to you.
6: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, so maybe my question, my next question is perhaps maybe Yam Jan- Jan- Peter, uh, maybe, maybe this might be best for you. So there's a growing sort of interest in, in the climate security as a kind of broad topic in bodies like uh, the UN security council and others. Um, you know, how can we sort of tap into that? And how can we perhaps extend this uh, this uh, dynamism in this area to, you know, into broader peace building operations uh, throughout the sort of UN system and beyond?
4: Yeah, thanks for the question. So um, the climate security community has mostly focused on the impact of climate change on peace and security. So, yeah, I mean, the typical uh, less rainfall, uh, more conflicts between farm- farmers and herders as one of the typical examples. But the climate security community, both as researchers, but certainly at the UN level or at the international policy level, has much less focused on climate mitigation and adaptation measures and their conflict implications. And that's why I very much welcome this talk here and I was happy to join it because a lot more attention needs to be paid both by academics, but also on the international policy making level On the conflict implications of especially large scale uh, mitigation and um, uh, adaptation projects, because that that is now the big thing that will uh, impact people on the ground on top of the climate impact. So, yeah, thank you for the question and I hope I could at least partly answer it. Yeah, thank you.
6: And uh, my next question maybe is for Sharon, um, and you talked a lot about the kind of the energy question. Um, so given uh, the huge interest in, internationally in sort of new sort of uh, net zero technologies, electric vehicles, for example, which obviously drive up demand for uh, resources, you know, what's the best way for engaging with the private sectors, you know, for big companies like Tesla, for example, you know, what's the best way of engaging with them on the question of resources and how they can support this, the policy and uh, action?
2: Well, I think there's a, a variety of ways. And one, you know, it certainly starts with governments having good policies. And I think uh, we, we still have a lot of work to do in that space to make sure that the the regulatory frameworks and the incentive structures are lined up for the right things. And and also, you know, for a company such as Tesla or better yet, even talking about the energy industry where the profit margins are very thin, uh, governments also have a role uh to be investing in research and development, because that innovation, there's you know significant innovation that needs to happen, and we can't just rely on the companies to do that sort of transformational research. So, um, so, but I think at the same time, uh, for a company such as Tesla, how they, what their supply chain is, and how they source it, and how what their their practices are. Uh, all along the way are are really important and can be destructive or constructive, and there has to be accountability for that. And also, proactively, I think there's been good uh, a good record here of the non governmental and the civil society sector setting up the mechanisms and the pressure to make sure that companies are are being uh, are being or conducting themselves well in this regard.
6: Great, thank you. And um, I guess there's a question for everyone. So if so, if anybody has an answer, then they feel free to chip in. Um, obviously this year is a very busy year for like international. So diplomacy on policy, so You have the food system summit. You have COP26. You have the uh, the COP on biodiversity, which uh, has been uh, been delayed until next year. But uh, there's lots of opportunities for engaging with policy and for driving policy. And I just uh, I just wanted to open the floor really to anybody who has a, a kind of wish list of things that they want to see. Like, if there was one thing they wanted to see delivered through these conferences that they they, they think would help. Uh, what would that be?
2: If I could just comment really quickly on something Jan Petter said about climate security. I, you know, I think that there's been a lot of interesting thought and, an interesting policy discussion, but not a lot of implementation. And, and I think that's all that's often a problem when it comes to complex challenges like this. And particularly when you start adding in questions about land use and forestry and energy that we just kind of lack the means to, to actually do something about it. So to me, what I would really like to see is in international organizations and in national governments investing in the means to actually implement change here, not just to talk about it or study it.
0: And once again, Jan Petter vigorously nodded his head uh, to in reaction to to your answer. So Jan Petter, maybe over to you next.
4: Yeah, I mean, I can I can just uh, continue what Sharon was saying. I think it's important uh, to understand the local context first, but then also to together with local actors. I think some of the comments were also, one was relating to that, of course, the more developed countries are the emitters and the most vulnerable are those facing the consequence of climate change. uh, The Bangladesh uh, example came up. And um, we have to make sure that now these climate mitigation adaptation strategies not not become like another colonial uh, endeavor where we extract the resources and uh, mitigate and save our climate, but the local impacts are there. And mostly detrimental. So, and to achieve that, we need to have social guardrails, as some of the programs have. But we need to go beyond that and need to focus on the local communities. And that is definitely something I would recommend for any uh, climate and whatever they are called this year uh,
5: negotiations. Negotiations this year. Uh,
0: thank you, and Augusta, over to you for a, a
5: final remark. Okay. Thank you. I think that yeah, it it, it is clear that uh, climate action can cause conflict, can be a driver of conflict, but climate action can also be a driver of peace. Uh, uh, if you analyze what, 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 what happens in the, in, in, on the ground, what we promote for peace building and what we promote for reducing the emissions from deforestation, for, for forest conservation, is mostly the same. But they are promoted from different perspectives. So what we need is to make them think the same, so that we can maximize the co benefits of this. So that's the that kind of research. Sometimes it's not about climate security or about a uh, climate peace building. It's about how we interconnect these two bodies of research to develop something that provides understanding of the local context, but at the same time provides provide solutions. So I would say that, yeah.
0: Thank you. And, and Davith, over to you for a final remark.
3: Yes, thank you. I think, um, I mean, I would sort of probably repeat a point that I've made before, which is that um, the problem with the overexploitation of natural resources is often not a problem of, of the lack of laws uh, the laws are on the books, but but government re- uh, regulators and law enforcement don't really have the capacity. So if they can't enforce the current laws now, then what is the point really of strengthening those laws, bringing in stricter, tighter regulations for for logging companies, mining companies, agribusiness, et cetera, if the law enforcement doesn't have the capacity on the ground to implement it? Uh, so really we need to ensure that, that when those policies are being negotiated at the international level, there is a thought given to how is this going to be implemented on the ground? Does the, is the capacity there? Whether it's government agencies or you know, and the same applies: are there local institutions? Are there local communities with the capacity to implement? It? Uh, and there needs to be an equal amount or, or, or great, a perhaps a greater amount of investment and thought given into the practical implementation on the ground. Uh, thank you.
0: Uh, thank you all. I am going to bring Linny Wallenberg back in for some concluding okay. remarks. Big thank you to the panelists. For those of you who are following the live stream, thank you for following. You can access other episodes that are part of this climate security series by subscribing to and following the Global Dispatches podcast. Uh, thank you all and over to you, Linny.
1: Thank you, Mark, and a huge thanks to our panelists and our audience and, and all of the facilitators. As you can see, this was a really lively discussion and it is a dynamic field. I feel like the top has just been taken off on on something that uh, potentially could grow and and have some serious uh, implications for action. So the panelists have demonstrated really well the type and scale of vulnerabilities that we have in the forestry, forest and energy sectors uh, in relation to mitigation and climate security, whether that's the level of, of violence, illegality or corruption the danger to lives, especially of environmental activists, to local communities and and their rights to to, uh, benefits in in the forests around them. And that these are all profoundly interlinked across countries along the supply chain, and we can't just be blaming local local, uh, forests and local communities, but rather also seeing the linkages all the way up to the the consumers and and the, the financiers. So, so, what are some of the solutions that are that have been recommended? We've we've had a, um, I think a very strong vision uh, put forth about what is possible and the need for resources, so finance, finance, finance for implementation. Uh, some of the concrete suggestions made were to anticipate conflict and 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 support early warning systems, uh, for example, through digital technologies and institutions. That, supports, that support peace building so that we're not always just putting out fires and, and wasting resources, but then create the conditions that are, are right for mitigation. That we need to be considering this capacity for law enforcement, providing training and, and capacity building. That we need better protection of, of the people living in the force themselves, including the law enforcement um, professionals. That we need to be taking care not to simply recreate the, the problems that we've had Uh, the the problems that we have currently um, with existing resources by shifting that problem to other resources, that we need to integrate the goals of mitigation and peace building in our activities related to land use planning and business models. um, And that we especially need to be able to work with the local communities and strengthen resilience and and support this implementation on the ground. So in response to the, the question from Reese about what would be the single message to give to the, the UN food system summit and, and the COP this year, I think it is is really, I, I believe this was reinforced by both Sharon and Jan Peter. Uh, how can we have peace positive mitigation? How can we support climate change mitigation um, that reinforces um, this dynamic of, of peace building? So with that, I wanna thank the organizers, all of the panelists in our audience and wish everybody a good day.
0: Thank you all for listening, and I hope you will join us for the next live taping of the podcast as part of the Climate Security Series with CGIAR.
3: Bye.